Good morning, folks. I'm so glad that you've signed in with us this morning. I wanted to start by sharing a very brief testimony, just to say that over the last six months or so, we've been doing alterations to our house so that Gail's mum can move in and stay with us, which is obviously quite a big change for her and for us as well. And about a week before she was due to move across to us, we met together with some folk from our life group and we were just sharing with one another and praying for each other. And these people prayed for us and also shared a word of exhortation with us as well, which was a complete game changer for the move. It changed the whole complexion of the thing and it was wonderful. And the reason why I share this with you is because it is so important for us as Christians to meet together in the flesh to spend time with one another. And so what I'd like to do is to draw your attention to a video which I made recently and posted about two weeks ago on our um, Harvest YouTube channel. Um, please go and have a look at it if you haven't, because it's about how we can further our vision by starting a network of small Harvest home, home churches. And I really would encourage you to go and, and watch that video because I think it is the way forward for us as a church. So please would you turn now to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be having a look at verses 15 to 23 and we'll be spending the next, well this week and the next time that I preach on this particular passage. So Ephesians 1 15 to 23. Let's just pray while you're turning there and before I read. Father God, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you so that we would know you better. And we also pray that as we come to your word that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we're able to see you in all your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in, this, in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What a wonderful scripture to be reading this morning. Some time ago, I read an article and I thought it was very interesting and telling the article said that if you were to take somebody who lived before the advent of the printing press and gather together all the information 
that that person had had access to and had been exposed to over their entire life, it would be less than the information contained in one edition of a weekly newspaper in the United Kingdom. It's true to say, folks, that we live in an age of information. And if the invention of the printing press opened the door to that age of information, the invention of the internet has opened the floodgates. We are inundated with literally thousands and thousands of cubic meters, if you like, of information on the internet. And I'm sure you would have been particularly aware of this, as I have been, over the last few months because we have been bombarded with information, opinions, ideas in the form of WhatsApp messages, emails, YouTube videos, all to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really has been overwhelming. I, for one, have had to withdraw a little bit because it's just been too much. And so we live in this age of information. But it's crucial to ask the question, with all of this information, with all of this knowledge, how much do we really know? And the reality is that we don't know very much. Even if you take COVID-19, for example, there are huge gaps in our knowledge of COVID-19. A lot of the time, even the specialists don't really know what's going on. And then the other factor is that often, although we have knowledge, it isn't much use to us because we haven't applied it in a personal or an experiential way. Take God, for example. You can get onto the internet and listen to a sermon by somebody like John Piper, for example, an expert in the Christian faith. And he will tell you all about how God is a provider. And he will provide biblical evidence for you to show that God is a provider. And you can go to other people and you can say to them, you know what, God is an amazing provider. Have a look at scripture this and scripture that. But do you know God as your provider? Have you been through experiences in your life when you needed a provider, when you were desperate for help and God came through for you as your provider? Do you know God as your provider? I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. And I don't think I've ever come across a couple who wanted to learn how to kiss on Google. They want to have a personal experience. They want to learn together. And this helps us to understand what I'm talking about today. But how do we obtain knowledge? And I'd like to use three headings today. First of all, the catalyst to acquiring knowledge. Second, the source of knowledge itself. And then thirdly, the means by which we acquire knowledge. The catalyst, the source, and the means. Let's go into the catalyst. Popular culture says that the way we acquire information is through study. You read the articles, you do the study on the internet, you read books, you listen to sermons, you study. But Paul adds an essential catalyst, and it might be one that surprises you. What is it? Well, let's take a look. He says, for this reason, for what reason? What is the reason for which he's about to write what he's going to write? And the reason is that he is addressing people who have become Christians. They have been redeemed. They were formerly enslaved by sin. God has paid the price for their redemption through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
then he's forgiven them for their sins and he's adopted them into his family for this reason. That's the reason. And he sums it up by saying, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the things I've just mentioned are accessed by faith. But he also says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In other words, we have a growing awareness that we have come to believe when our love for the saints grows. This is very important, folks, and I'd like to underline it today. If you want to, to pick up the signs that you are growing as a Christian, make sure that you are growing in your love and your concern for all the saints. So that's the reason. What is he now? So we know the reason. So what, what is he about to write and what does he write? He says, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then on, he goes on to pray that the Ephesians will obtain and acquire knowledge. So what is the essential catalyst, therefore, of learning and acquiring knowledge? In Paul's mind, it is prayer. You know, he could have prayed for all sorts of things for these Ephesian Christians, but he wrote down and prioritized the thing that would be the most important, and that was a prayer for knowledge and knowledge of God. So that is the essential catalyst of learning. It's prayer. He says that we obtain knowledge by studying and by prayer. I'm not saying that studying isn't important, but we often miss that essential catalyst, which is prayer, as we experience and we process what we're going through in life. Some implications of this. First of all, when you come to study, when you come to learn something, maybe you're going to listen to a sermon, maybe you're going to read the Bible, you need to start and continue with prayer. So, first of all, you start with prayer. We did that today, didn't we? We stopped and we prayed and we just said, Father God, please give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Please enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Help us to understand what we're about to learn. Help us so that you will reveal to us things which otherwise are hidden from us and that we didn't know. And so we start with prayer. And then we continue with prayer by asking God to help us to apply what it is that we've learned. Because if knowledge is not applied, then it's useless. So we need to find out from God, Father, what is it that I need to know at this time and at this stage of my life? And how should I apply it? We also continue with prayer even as we go through our daily lives because we'll experience things in the course of our lives. Maybe we feel a very strong emotional feeling about something. We react maybe in anger or frustration or feeling depressed. Then we turn to God in prayer and we process that experience and we say, Father God, what is it that you want to teach me through this? I'm facing this particular problem. I'm feeling really stuck. What is the solution to this problem? Can you see that prayer is the catalyst? So that's the first implication. And the second implication is that we should pray for others. Let's pray for our children. Let's pray for our spouse. Let's pray for our parents and our friends and our work colleagues. Let's use this passage, Ephesians 15 to 23, as a pattern to guide the way we pray 
for people that we love and people that we want to join us in the Christian walk. So knowledge is acquired by study and prayer, not just by study as popular culture would have us believe. But there's another error that popular culture makes. Popular culture has mistaken the source of knowledge. So let's move on now to the next heading, which is the source of knowledge. Who does Paul affirm as the ultimate source of knowledge? Just have a look there at verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. So if God does the giving, that means that he must be the source. And what a source he is. Paul describes him here as the father of glory. What does he mean by that? And how does it relate to him as the source of knowledge and information? Well, the glory of God is all his attributes, the perfection and the infinite nature of, of who he is, of his attributes. So if we think of his knowledge, it is perfect and it is infinite. If we think of his wisdom, if we think of his understanding, all of these things are perfect and infinite. So why wouldn't we go to him as the source of all knowledge? He created all of this, everything that we see, everything that we, that we feel and that we touch and taste and hear. God created it. He set it up. He knows how it works. And so we need to go to him as the source. But, and this is a big one, how often do we go to God as the source of knowledge and information? Our inclination, often when we're stuck or when we're feeling under pressure, is to turn to other people or maybe to turn to the internet or maybe to turn to books. First of all, and I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but first of all, let us acknowledge that God is the source of all wisdom and knowledge and learning. I think that's exactly what Craig's been telling us in the last few weeks. The fear of the Lord, respecting Him as the ultimate one, the ultimate source of information and knowledge. So, the catalyst of learning is prayer. The source is God. But what means does God use to help us learn things so that they are actually of some use to us? What should we pray for, in other words? So Paul prays, May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who is right there in the center of our being, helping us to learn, helping us to acquire knowledge, and particularly knowledge about God. And this is a mind-blowing fact. It's, it's a mind-blowing implication. If we have the Holy Spirit right at the center of our will, right at the center of our emotions, right at the center of our thoughts, of our very being, and He's with us all the time, wherever we go, then we can't fail to learn about God and about the nature of reality. He is the means. The Holy Spirit is the means. The Holy Spirit, if you like, is the presence of God in us. It actually turns our bodies into a temple because a temple is a place where God lives and is worshipped. God lives in us. He's right there helping us through the power of the Holy Spirit to give us 
wisdom and revelation. So the Spirit is the means by which God teaches us. But let's look at how Paul describes the Spirit, because that's going to help us understand why the Holy Spirit is an essential means to the process of acquiring knowledge. So he says, may the Spirit of wisdom, that's the whole topic that Craig has been addressing in the last few sermons, but let's have a look at it very briefly and in a nutshell. What is wisdom? Wisdom basically answers the how question. In life, maybe 95% of the cases and the issues that we face, the general rules don't apply to them. It's a real challenge to know which principle applies and how that principle applies. How do we apply it? It's all very well to know what the truth is, but how do we apply the truth in a way that is appropriate to a given situation? And most of the moral conundrums that we end up facing are because there are competing interests and needs, and also, in many cases, competing principles as well. And we need to figure out which principle is the one that is the most important and needed to be applied. And so why wouldn't we turn to God, the creator of the universe, and ask Him to give us wisdom through the Holy Spirit that He's put inside of us? Let me give you a practical example of this. When I was growing up, when my parents wanted to find out what I was listening to, which is a good thing for parents to do, because the Bible says that we need to guard what we listen to, what we meditate on. It says whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on these things. If they wanted to find out what I was listening to, they would go to my record collection and have a look at the covers on the records. And that would give them a pretty good indication of what I was listening to and whether it was suitable or not. And also in those days, I maybe had eight or nine or ten albums that I was listening to. But my children, on the other hand, have got devices onto which they can download literally hundreds and hundreds of different artists and different songs. So how was I going to carry out the same purpose? So I started to think to myself, well, maybe if I tell them that this band is okay and that band isn't. Maybe if I give them a list of things that they can listen to and that they can't listen to. But I realized that wasn't wise because there was no ways I would be able to listen to every single song that they were listening to. So then I had to go back to the Lord and say, Father God, how do I solve this problem? And so in the end, I realized that what I needed to do was rather than listening to every song that they were listening to, um, rather than giving them a list of ones they could listen to and couldn't listen to, I should rather teach them how to be discerning in what they listen to. And so we sat down together and I said, what, what are some of the songs that you're listening to? What are your, some of your favorite songs? And then we would listen to a song and we'd say, how does this song measure up um, in terms of the language that is being used, in terms of the themes that are being addressed? Are, is there explicit sexual contact, content? Is there implicit sexual content? Um, does it have to do with violence? Is it aggressive towards women? And we talked about these things and, and then we listened to the next song and I said, do you think this song is okay to listen to? And they'd listen to it and they'd say, yeah, no, no, we think this one's fine. And then Catherine would say, oh, I've got another one that I want you to listen to. And even before she, she hit play, she was like, mm, 
no, actually, I, I don't think this is a good song. I think I'm going to delete this. So she was starting to learn already. And that was an example of how God can give us wisdom to know how to apply a, a particular principle and truth in a given context. So wisdom answers the how question. It's, it's about how to apply knowledge. But it's also more than that. It's also about understanding the true nature of reality, the way that God has set things up to work. You see, if God has set things up in a certain way and we work against that because we're trying to work in our own wisdom and understanding, we are going to prove ourselves to be fools. We need to find out how God has set things up and that requires revelation. That's the second thing, that we are given the spirit of revelation. So just let me read to you from Isaiah 55 verse 8. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What is he saying here? He's saying that with the best will in the world, with the, 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 the greatest amount of effort in the world, his thoughts and his ways are still going to be vastly different to our thoughts and our ways and our understanding. And that gap, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that gap needs to be bridged by revelation. Things need to be revealed to us. It's not that we can't know these things, it's just that we don't know them unless God reveals them to us. And that's why it's so important to have God's revelation. Let me give you a practical example of this. Suppose, for example, you're a social worker and part of your job is to rehabilitate street children. And so now you're trying to figure out what is the process of rehabilitation? How do we change these children from broken, hurting street children into productive functional members of society. And if you believe, if your opinion is that it will all happen through education, if we simply educate them, you're going to prove yourself to be a fool. If you think that the only way to change them is by some sort of economic redemption, where you teach them skills so that they can make money and be financially independent, and you focus only on that, you're also going to prove yourself to be a fool. These things are important. But the most important thing to rehabilitate somebody is for them to be changed from being a rebel, an enemy of God, into being a son or a daughter, a child of God, adopted into their family. Because that's how God set up reality. If we want things to truly change, we don't change the externals, we change the inside. And so we need to know the true nature of reality before we start making theories and ideas and plans about how to apply principles and knowledge and learning. So that's one of the reasons why we need revelation. The other one is that revelation is required in order to see God in the first place. If you take, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees in the Old Testament, these men were incredibly learned. In fact, they had learned the law of Moses they had learned the writings of the prophets. They had learned the Psalms. And they'd learned all of these things off by heart. Chapter 
and verse. And all of those things, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of them were pointing towards Jesus. All of them were preparing the readers to, to see Jesus and to recognize him for who he was. And yet those scribes and those Pharisees had Jesus right in front of them in the flesh and they didn't recognize him. They needed the Holy Spirit of revelation in order to be able to recognize him. And then the, the third reason why we need revelation is that sometimes we need a person to disclose themselves to us before we can truly learn about them. So I could be making friends with someone. I could observe all sorts of things about them, see them in different contexts, listen to what they say, what their opinions are. But it's only when they really open up their heart, when they say, this is what I'm th really thinking. This is, this is what I believe. This is me that I get to know them. And it's the same with God. We're only truly going to get to get to know God when he discloses himself to us and reveals himself to us. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. That's why the Spirit is the means by which we acquire knowledge about the nature of life and about God Himself, because He gives us wisdom and revelation. And then the last thing that the Spirit does, and we find it from what Paul prays, he, he prays and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you may know. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. What's he getting at here? What, is, what does he mean by that? Well, let me just explain the terms that the Hebrews meant, what they meant by the term the heart and the eyes of the heart. So first of all, the heart. The heart is the center of a person's being. It's, it's the very center of his mind, of his emotions, um, of his will. So if you look, for example, at a computer setup, you, you'll see the screen, you'll see the keyboard, you'll see various devices plugged in, perhaps there'll be a CD drive, uh, maybe a webcam. When you look at that entire setup, you know that the center of that setup is the CPU. Because the CPU um, takes information from all of those things and processes it and then sends it to other aspects of the computer. So you type on the keyboard, it goes to the CPU, it makes a change on the computer screen or it gets the CD drive going. That's what a CPU does. It's right at the heart, it's right at the center. And in the same way, the Hebrew understanding of the heart was that it wasn't just the seat of emotions, which is what we think today. It was the very center, the, the processor of the entire being. So that's the heart. What about the eyes of the heart? What, what were the eyes of the heart? And we, we, we know from our study of the Bible that the eyes of the heart is the mind. It's the mind that needs to be enlightened. Let me give you an example of this before we close. It's from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 45. Jesus is, has just revealed himself to the disciples in his resurrected body. And initially they didn't recognize him because he was the same and yet he was different. Just as we're going to be one day. We'll be the same, but we'll be so, so different. And the disciples didn't get it. You know, they'd spent three years with Jesus. 
they had heard him teaching and they'd had a revelation to a certain extent. I mean, Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet when Jesus appeared to them in, in their resurrected form, in his resurrected form, they were confused. They, 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 they were depressed and discouraged because they hadn't expected him to be raised from the dead. Why was it that they didn't grasp these things? What was needed? And so we see in verses 44 and 45, Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So these people, they knew the law of Moses, they knew the prophets, they knew the Psalms, they'd spent time with Jesus, he told them stuff, and they still hadn't got it. And then the key is in the next verse. It says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Folks, this is what we need. This is what we pray for, that God would open the eyes of our heart, that he would open our mind so that we would understand the scripture, so that we, we would understand the true nature of reality. And unless we are born again, unless we are adopted into God's family and he has deposited his Sp Holy Spirit in us, it's going to be impossible for those things to happen. And so I would encourage you in the week ahead to reflect on these things. Remember, remember that the catalyst to the acquisition of knowledge to learning is prayer. Go through your life processing everything with prayer. When you seek to find out more about God, remember, start with prayer, continue with prayer. Pray for your loved ones, pray for your children, pray for your spouse, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Also, acknowledge that God is the source of all knowledge. We need to start with Him. He is the starting point. And then praise God because we have the Holy Spirit within us. He is deposited there within us. We have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation accessible to us all the time whenever we need it. And then, folks, next week we're going to move on to to how this fits with God's mission and His plan to bring everything on earth under the headship and the leadership of Christ. And I'm really looking forward to that because this just gets more and more exciting. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for our time together. And we are incredibly grateful to you. It just beggars the imagination to think that you have put your Holy Spirit within us. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for, for giving us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Thank you for in, enlightening the eyes of our hearts. And we ask that this would be a process that continues as we go now into the week. We, we pray that it would also be a means to an end, the end of glorifying you, of lifting you up in all your splendor and all your majesty to the people around us. We pray that it would be a means by which we would contain you and allow you to fill everything around us in every way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.